It seems as if our issues come with mind-numbing regularity, and um, they don't slow down at all. I mean, it, it seems like be a pre- I can make a pretty effective argument here, which might shorten this message considerably, to say that I, I'm not sure if you do anything today, it's going to be any different than it was yesterday. I mean, history doesn't appear to show that for us. I mean, it, I say four words, Middle East peace crisis, peace talks. How, I, I'm, I'm older than most of you. I can't tell you how many iterations I've seen of the Middle East peace talks. From what I can tell, we haven't had a lot of change. I'm still waiting for the Middle East to change. And so when there's another round of Middle East peace talks, I've got to be honest with you. My, 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 there's a, I'm yawning. It seems as if there is no expiration date on the problems that we face. They just keep coming. I'll, um, I, I, I went on to Yahoo this morning. The, it, it's my you know, main page, first page that comes up. And I went on Yahoo, and I, I'm just giving you a sampling of our headlines. I'm, I'm going to ignore the OMG ones, you know, the ones they put on there which are just sort of weird. I'm just going to give you a sampling of the headlines. This is just, you know, in the little box where it lists them. You can click on them and see what really happened. But here's what we got. Small tsunami waves reach Japan after major earthquake. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Big tragedy. Louisiana jailer taken hostage, rescued by SWAT team. Funeral set for man who fell at baseball game in Texas. Libyan rebel fighters face heavy attack from Gaddafi forces and long process to clean up schools cheating. I did not click that one. That could have been about plagiarism, and it could have been about Big Ten uh, football. I don't really know which it is about. But I look at that, and okay, and tomorrow there'll be another set. They'll be eerily similar. Problems in school, problems with war, problems with violence, problems with natural catastrophes. I'm, I'm waiting for the world to change. There doesn't appear to be an expiration date. Where's the urgency? Where's the deadline? Where's my action going to make any difference whatsoever on the issues of our world? The expiration date's at the individual level. The expiration date is the fact that I can read this quote you about rebel forces, and if I bring it down, what happens is some 18-year-old kid was shot and killed. Tsunami hits after earthquake. I can yawn, or I can look at the individual level where somebody is without a home and has lost parents. funeral for man who dies at Texas baseball game. Just sounds quirky, doesn't it? Do you know what happened? Some of you probably do. Many of you don't. I mean, honestly, an unbelievably tragic story. It really is. And if I read you that headline, there's no urgency here. This is what happened. Josh Hamilton, who's a fine human being, really. He's playing the outfield for the Texas Rangers and after a foul ball, which he tossed to the first base coach, a third base coach, I can't remember, um, he heard a father yell, hey, Josh, how about throw me the next one? He looked up and I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. Next one came, he turned and he whipped it up to the happy father with his six-year-old boy who reached over, grabbed it with both hands, fell over the railing and died. 
And Josh Hamilton says the sound he can't get out of his head is the six-year-old boy screaming, Daddy, Daddy, after his father fell. Where's the urgency? Today, a six-year-old boy lost his dad. Somebody is going to act. Somebody is going to care for that boy. Somebody is going to care for his mom. Somebody is going to see that if something isn't done, his grief will spiral out of control. It looks like there's no expiration date in the people's problems and the issues of our world until we actually think about the people. There's 3,000 plus kids who are homeless in Charlotte today. That's a number until you realize that each one of them has a name. And if something doesn't happen, tomorrow night they'll be back on the streets. And if they're back on the streets tomorrow night, they run the risk of untold number of things happening to them. There's no urgency until you think about the actual people. Today, some little girl whose mother is a prostitute will make a lifelong decision about what they're going to do, and they may choose to follow mommy's footsteps. There is urgency in that person's life today. Today, thousands of people will lose their homes. Today, thousands of people will lose their jobs. Well, it's Sunday. They have a reprieve, so it'll be tomorrow. In every one of those people, there is an expiration date because they will make decisions about their life. They will make decisions about their relationship. They will make decisions about their future. It only lacks urgency when we're looking at it on Yahoo or when we stand back and say, hey, the world's full of problems. What am I going to do? I mean, Jesus even said, the poor you always have with you. But when you look into the individual faces of people who suffer, And when you realize that every one of those numbers indicates an actual person, and you realize that people's lives hang in the balance today, and it's not theoretical, and you realize in those moments when you thought you were doing something so simple and so small, and you reached out to help one kid, one parent, one friend, and it changed their life, and then you realize there's a deadline. Because today, people make decisions that are life-death-altering. And so the real question is, why? Uh, Maybe there's two real questions. Why don't we do anything about it? Other than feel guilty. I probably already made you feel guilty. By the way, it's really easy to do. I can do it every Sunday. It's really easy to make you feel guilty. It's not very productive, by the way. If you feel guilty, that's fine, but it's not the goal. Why don't we care? Because the truth is, I I sort of brought it home to you. Why is it, unless I tell you about the story with Josh Hamilton, why is it only there that you go, I kind of care a little bit? Why, when we experience personal tragedy, why, when it's a friend of ours, why would we care? And if it's not, it's just sort of this indifferent thing. Their pain level is no less. Why does our heart get so limited on how much we care about other people? And what does that say about where we are? Well, I care about the people who are close to me. If they're in pain, I'm probably in pain. Depends on how, are they, how close they are. Give me a little bit of distance, and it doesn't even touch me. Today, I'm going to attempt to answer that question. Why it is we don't care? I mean that in a broad sense. I'm not accusing you of being uncaring people. 
But why our care level stops short? Why we fail to see the urgency of people's needs and what might be a pathway out of that? And I'm going to do that through telling you a story. It's a story from the Bible, and I'm going to, we're going to go through an entire book of the Bible today, the book of Jonah. And when I say Jonah, you think whale. It's not really the point, by the way. We will talk about the whale or great fish. When I say great fish, I think of Jonah, the uh, VeggieTales movie, because they said great fish. They said it funny. Anyway, whale, great fish, not really the point of the story, although there is a really particularly important point about the, 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 the fish thing. But that's what most of you probably know about Jonah, honestly. Jonah, oh yeah, guy swallowed by a fish. Three days later, you know, came out. It's not the point of the story. What I'm going to do is we're going to go through the whole book, not a verse at a time. We're going to go through the story. And I want you to see the point of it because it's a powerful point. And what happened was this week, I was not intended to speak this morning on Jonah. I was speaking on something else, uh, a different passage. And then I thought of this one verse, which is the last verse of the book. And then it brought me to go back and read Jonah again. As I was reading through Jonah again, I go, oh, no, no, this is really the point. This, this book is exactly on answering this question. Why don't we care about the world around us? So... With that, we launch into Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, small background. Nineveh was a big city at the time, about 120,000 people. It was the capital of Assyria, and it was world-renowned, or at least regionally renowned, for its brutality and cruelty. How would you like to be known for that? That's what Nineveh is known as. It's known as in an ancient time where kingdoms and rulers were notoriously brutal, Nineveh was worse. World-renowned for its uh, brutality and its cruelty. For when it took prisoners, only taking them to be slaves and beaten. And so, if you don't know the story of Jonah, and you start reading through this, you're thinking, this is what Jonah's thinking. Okay, God, let me get this straight. What you want me to do, you want me to go to Nineveh, renowned for brutality and cruelty. You want me to go there by myself and tell them they've been naughty, and you're mad at them. I think I'll go the other direction. I mean, this, I, I, I see no scenario where this works out well for me. So... I'm getting in a boat, and I'm going the other way. I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you're just starting to read the story, Jonah is either really smart, or he's a coward, or, or maybe some mix of both, and he doesn't want to go there. I, I wouldn't want to go there. He's not going to go tell them that they're naughty. That's really not going to go well. And so this is what happens. You know the story from here, right? Jonah gets in a boat, bad seas, they throw him overboard, gets swallowed by a great fish, and he lives in the fish for three days. Which, by the way, I mean, I just, you got to deal with the whole fish thing. It, there are documented cases in history of this happening, just so you know. Anyway, now we got that over with. Okay, so this is what happens. After three days, which I assume was pretty uncomfortable, after three days, you got this great uh, prayer that Jonah gives. Really, it's like, it's like one of the Psalms. It's, it's really beautiful. I'm wondering at the level of creativity he was able to come up with in such cramped quarters, but this is what he says at the end of that. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless I- idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I mean, I said that first service. That, I could just, that verse, I could go with that one for a long, long time. 
and he's inside of a fish. I wish I had that creativity outside. But anyway, but I with the song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. So Jonah, in the midst of a tough circumstance, calls out to God and says, God, yep, apart from you, there's not a whole lot else. I realize that I need you. And then the next verse literally says, and so God had the fish vomit Jonah up on the beach. Yes, vomit. So now we're going to get to chapter three. Next thing. It starts, and if you didn't know this was chapter three, you might think it's chapter one because what we're back to is we're back to the exact same place we started. It's like we got there by a different, different, different route, but we're at the same, the same place we intended all along, which is that God says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to the message I give you. It's like, hey, Jonah, we had a little, little detour here, right back where we started. Remember what I said first time? Exact same thing. Now, now go to Nineveh. I said that to you before. You spend a little bit of time doing some other stuff. We're back. Go to Nineveh and give him this message. Jonah, I think, feeling like his, his, uh, his options were few, he could either go back for another adventure, which was not that pleasant, or he could go on and go to Nineveh. And since he was going to have to go to Nineveh, apparently, anyway, he went. And he uh, preached a message to the city of Nineveh. And you've got to imagine this. He just got spit up by a fish, and so he probably doesn't look great. Likely bleached white, walking, walking through the city of Nineveh, saying, 40 days, and God is going to bring your city to the ground because of the... His, the sins of your city have come up before him. And this is what happens. It's kind of amazing. Um, they don't kill him. They don't torture him. They don't make him a prisoner. They believe him. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They believed it. They said, Oh my goodness, we have not... We have not done well here. Let's, let's change our ways. And then this is what happens. God says, well, when, the, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion them and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. See, I'm thinking that was his goal all along. I'm thinking his goal all along was to call people back to himself to change the suffering and pain they were bringing to others and in the end to themselves as well and wanting their hearts made right again. I'm thinking that was his goal all along. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. This may be my favorite prayer in the entire Bible. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God that relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He says, God, this really ticks me off. You see, he didn't run away because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He ran away because he did not want them to be forgiven. And he says, is this not what I thought all along? Yet you were not going to... See, Jonah didn't really understand God. He thought God's point was to go destroy them, and he was afraid. He was afraid that they might actually turn, and then God would forgive them because it really makes him mad. God, you are a loving and gracious, compassionate God. And that really ticks me off because now the Ninevites are not getting destroyed. 
So now let me die, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah has a bit of a, a fit, and God leaves him alone and lets him stew on it for a minute. And in the meantime, Jonah sits and pouts. And while pouting, this lovely vine is over him, and it makes him cool because it's a hot day. And then, uh, essentially, God kills the vine. He, he has, he has a, a, a metaphor in it. There's a lesson here. And, and when <laughs> he kills the, the vine, uh, Jonah, it, Jonah wants to die again. And he's still, I mean, this is his refrain. It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. I'm angry enough to die. And <laughs> yeah, we got that, Jonah. <laughs> See, I'm not kidding. That's his, that's his refrain. I'm angry enough to die. Whenever your child starts acting like that, you just realize, okay, you know, Jonah did it too. So it's, he's at least in biblical company. <clears throat> but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their left hand, their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. I don't know why that part's in there. <laughs> I just think that's funny. And many cattle as well. Okay. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not care about the pain and suffering of those 120,000 people, Jonah? You know what the next verse is? There's not one. It's where it ends. For all we know, Jonah's next line was, yes, and that makes me so angry, I could die. For all we know, that's his next line. We have no idea what Jonah's response is. I love this book. It's like it was written in, you know, by a postmodern philosopher who said, I'm not giving you an ending. Resolution's overrated. And what he does is, just like the parables of Jesus, the question is not, what does Jonah do? The question is, what do you and I do with this? That's the beauty of the open-ended story. God says simply this, shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? What do you think? And that verse is the heart of what can turn us into people who care, genuinely care about the world and about people around us. Not out of guilt, not out of duty, but because something has changed. Because this is a core biblical concept, is that you and I are made to be like God. We're made in the image of God. When we are at our best and truest self, our heart is like God's. We love what he loves, we hate what he hates. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who passionately cares for the city, who cares for the lost, who cares for the hurting, who cares for the broken, whose heart reaches out for them. So for him, it's a rhetorical question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Of course I am. Why? Because those are people. It seems that somehow as we go through the Bible that God breaks past the barren statistical approach to pain and suffering and sees individual people's hearts, lives, souls, despair, joys, anguish, happiness, dreams, and fears and actually reaches to them. The heart of God is one that cares for humanity in its individual state, who longs to see cycles of poverty and pain broken, who longs to see generational issues which plague us and come through our family stopped, 
who longs to see pain eliminated and brokenness healed. This is the heart of God. It is the pervasive teaching of the Bible that God is the God of Jonah's right, of compassion. See, Jonah knew enough to know, I know what you're like, God. You are a God of compassion. You always long to relent and give people life. And so the question is, if that's what God is like, and you are, not, I, are made in his image, then why aren't we like that? that? That's not a rhetorical question. You see, what the transformation of our souls is not a path of starting with a blank slate and adding good things into our life. The transformation of our souls is the process of their stripping off of that which is not us, which is false, untrue, debilitating, so that the true core of who we are is revealed, so that the image of God is known. And so when my heart is like God, what it says is not I need to get better. What it says is that there's something amiss. There's something that's badly flawed. There's something that needs to be stripped away because it's keeping me from my truest and best self, the self that is godly, the self that is holy, the self that loves outside of himself without having to try or to put on guilt. I have lived a a circuitous path of trying to address the issue of caring in my life. I, I mean, I care but I don't care like I think I ought to. And I used to deal with that in all sorts of ways. One of them was, well, you know, I'm just, I get distracted easily, which is true. I do. I get distracted easily. I care, I guess, get distracted easily. And then I went through a phase where I thought, you know, maybe I don't care at all. And then I realized, no, no, that's not true. The truth is my truest and best self, the self that emerges at times, and often emerges with the people closest to me, my truest and best self cares deeply about the pain and the joys of those around me. And so the question I have to ask is, what's this other stuff that's clinging to me? And how do I strip that away? That's the process of sanctification, of making us whole again, is stripping away that which is not us. Now, back to the fish or a whale. Uh, Jonah was inside of a whale for three days, and then he is vomited up. Jesus says in uh, the book of Matthew, which is one of the stories of his life, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, as Jonah was in the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the ground for three days and rise again. Jesus says Jonah is a metaphor. What is the metaphor? The metaphor is as Jonah was in the whale, proverbially dead, and then was raised again to enter the city and bring a message of hope. So the Son of Man, Jesus, was put to death, and he rose and rescued the world. If you ever wonder, does God care about the affairs of humanity? and about your life, you look no farther than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who came to earth, strapped on flesh, allowed himself to be crucified, and then rose 
after three days in the grave to redeem you and I. He came to earth to rescue us, to eliminate pain, to bring joy, to forgive us, and to give us life again. It was his mission. It remains his mission. The second part of the metaphor is this. When we receive Jesus, this, and this is what we picture primarily in adult baptism, we die to ourselves and are raised again to move out into the world. Christianity is not the story of barren forgiveness. It is not sort of getting a barcode check, I have the proper answers, and now God will let me into heaven as long as I get swiped as I go in. Christianity is the story of humanity, individuals who realize that their heart was off, broken and disconnected from God. And so, like Jonah and the whale, they laid down their life, died to that which was false, untrue, and unlike God, and ask God to forgive them. And then rise again to live an entirely different way. Your goal, once you receive Christ and to move forward into the world, is not to get 20% more moral. Your goal is to be like God. Your goal is to have a heart that loves and lives outside of itself. Your goal is to reach into the world in meaningful and significant ways, not because you should, not because you must, not because you'll get brownie points, not because others will think it's really cool, but because your heart has been changed and you've become like God. This is what Jonah reveals to us. There's an expiration date on people's lives. There was an expiration date on the city of of Nineveh. And when real people act, God changes the city around us somebody today will walk into the life of that little boy whose dad died. And if they walk in with compassion and with hope, his life will be changed. Somebody today will walk into the life of a homeless person, and because of that, their life will be changed. This is the calling that God has on our lives. I am... Um, I have a book club. There's three of my friends in it, none of whom are at Warehouse, and I, w- I won't tell their names. And they were friends of mine from s- soccer. Shocking, I know. And we had a discussion online one day about something rather philosophical, which I found fascinating. Shocking again. And then I asked them, do you want to form a book club? They said yes. So we began to read a book a month, and We've discussed all sorts of things, but in the process of this, this is what I've seen. These are three men who had every uh, opportunity to simply live a life of leisure. Like there's a story in the, a parable in the Bible that Jesus tells about somebody who makes a lot of money and then says, I've done it. I'm now going to store all my wealth and I'm going to live out my days in ease and care about nobody and nothing and spend all my money. Honestly, these three guys could do that. Their careers have gone in such a way that they could live out their lives in ease. And yet I've watched them over these years get outside of themselves in some significant ways, one of whom their family has built a house for the homeless, built a house for the homeless, which houses the homeless on a regular basis. Others of them are consistently involved with groups like Habitat for Humanity or with the, uh, the um, farmer's market that provides food for the homeless uh, or food for the hungry. 
I've watched them consistently do that and watched them not uh, brag to me about it. Sort of like, I mean, it'd be easy. I'm a pastor, in case you didn't know. It'd be easy for them to go, hey, you look what I did. And it seemed like maybe I could give them brownie points, which, by the way, I can't. I, I can't give you any brownie points. But they don't do that. It's just a very natural process out of their life. And what has struck me over time is that something has changed in their heart. Something has changed in their heart so that they actually care about people outside themselves. I've seen that in how they've dealt with me. I see that in how they deal with the world. Now, why do I tell you that? They've got, the, they've got flaws, warts, all sorts of stuff. But I've watched the process by which people care about others around them, and it's a change of their heart. And it makes me think all sorts of things. It makes me think that perhaps we can be very different. Perhaps you and I cannot live out the caricature of what people think Christianity is, which is people who don't watch bad, bad movies drink slightly less in public, and are relatively judgmental. I mean, seriously, I wish I was kidding. I wish that was not the picture. But it is. Why? Because at some level, we've missed the point. We've thought that what Christianity is, is getting the right answers on a test, and so God forgives us, and then we pretend to be more moral. What Christianity is, is the story of people who are loved desperately by a God who died for them and whose hearts change. Really change. So we're no longer playing games. So something about us breaks, dies, and we rise again and see the world and one another with new eyes. It is the ongoing process. It's what I call you and I into. Should I not be concerned about this great city? The reason why you and I don't care, as we should, some of you may care far more deeply than I, but the reason we don't care as fully as we ought to is there's something in the way. There's some obstacle that has gotten in the way of our true self emerging. And the real task is for you to figure what that is and rip it out. For Jonah, the obstacle was an overactive judgment gene. Jonah really wanted the people of Nineveh to get crushed. That would have made him very happy. Then he would not be so angry that he wanted to die. If they had just gotten crushed, he would have been really happy. Jonah also had a strong sense of a need for comfort. He needed his shade tree. When he didn't get his shade tree, he was so angry that he wanted to die. The only thing that did not make him so angry he wanted to die is when other people suffered and were in pain. Jonah had issues with judgment, and he had issues with comfort. Everybody likes comfort. Justice is not a bad thing. Those things had gotten twisted dominated, become his idols, and were choking his heart. What chokes your heart? See, when you realize how difficult it is for your heart to be moved, the question is not, well, I guess I should just start acting better. The question is, are you willing to take the time to figure out what that is? What's choking it out? 
I have spent some years now trying to figure this out for myself, and more and more of it emerges. I no longer have patent simple answers about why I don't care or how much I do care. I realize that my heart was made to care deeply about others around me, and that now God is doing the far more difficult, painful, but beautifying process of stripping all that stuff away. As we come to communion today, you, you can think whatever you want, honestly, but I invite you to consider one thought. What is it right now that clings to your heart that you already know about that you need to eradicate? Christianity is a process of laying down your life to rise new. What do you need to lay down today? The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said to his disciples, this bread is my body. It'll be broken for you. Then at the end of supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is given for all of you. Drink it. And that moment he told them that I will lay down my life for you and if you receive it, I will be with you and in you. I will forgive you and I will change your life. Communion is a memorial of that. It's a remembrance of that. It's something that God invites us into to remind us that the core of our faith is the death of a Savior for us and remind us also that it's intended to have us rise to new life. Today, if you are someone who has personally put their faith in Jesus, whether it was 20 minutes ago or 20 years ago, and you are anxious to be about the process of seeing your soul grow closer to God and more alive, I invite you, whether you're part of Warehouse or not, to come to communion as we take it. If you're someone who can, can, still struggles with the issue of wondering whether or not you believe this is true, whether you believe there's a God, whether you believe Jesus was him, whether you believe Jesus died for you, whether you believe your heart has any hope, if you continue to wrestle with those sorts of issues, I would encourage you to keep wrestling, but not to take communion. And the reason why is, is this. It's a, it's a, it is a metaphor. It's an illustration. But Jesus... God gives a whole series of illustrations throughout the Bible. And what happens is when we turn these into barren rituals, they tend to do violence to our heart because now we take something that was intended to be very meaningful and we make it into nothing. Don't do that to yourself. If you've got real issues to face, still have questions, deal with those questions. It's a fine place to be. And then if you like, talk to one of us after the service about the questions and issues you have, and we'd be happy to work through them with you, talk with you about them. And if the communion service will come forward, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to serve them. And then at the, at the conclusion of that, they will move out into the room. There'll be, I think, four stations throughout the room, a couple there, maybe three there, one there. And once they're there, you can move to any of those stations. They will gather you into a group of about 12. They will serve you. They will pray with you, and then you can make your way back to your seat. Let's pray. Lord, we... Um, we lift up ourselves to you. You are the God who sees us, who has concern for us, who watches when we are in anguish, who watches when we get tunneled into selfishness, who calls us out of it and calls us to our better self and our truer self, who calls us away from the sin that bogs us down, that keeps us from loving you and loving others who delights to see us free. We come to you today, and as we move into this moment of communion, we ask that you be present in our midst and moving our hearts this morning. We come with a great sense of gratitude for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which gives us freedom. We pray this in his name.
Amen.